0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, FlowHealth, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Nilay Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. So one of the ways that I think about Decoder is that we're just taking a tour through all the parts of running a modern business. Obviously, we talk to a lot of CEOs and heads of product, but we've had chief legal officers and chief marketing officers on the show. And you all know how much I love talking to people in the creator industry, which is still basically inventing itself, figuring out what the right roles even are. There's a reason I end up asking almost everyone about their org charts, understanding the structure of a business to understand all of the rest of it. One thing that's always struck me in all these conversations is how little any of us really pay attention to the advertising industry and how deeply connected it is to almost every other modern business. After all, you can start a company and invent a great product, but you still need to market it. You need to tell people about it and eventually convince them to buy it. And then the platform companies that we all depend on mostly run on ads. Google's entire business is ads. Meta's entire business is ads. I mean, listen to Mark
0: Zuckerberg. Senator, we run ads.
1: And when we talk to all those creators, they're even more tied to ads. Their distribution platforms like TikTok and YouTube are all ad-supported, and ads make up a huge portion of their revenue. And then on the flip side, there's so much noise in our media ecosystem that actually making effective ads and figuring out where to put them has dramatically changed over the past decade. Five years ago, no one was advertising on TikTok. But now, it's all anybody wants. I know it's all anybody wants, because this week I'm talking to Neil Arthur, the CEO of Widen & Kennedy, one of the few major independent ad agencies in the world, and maybe the coolest one. I mean, it's definitely got a rep. Widen is the agency that came up with Just Do It for Nike, and Bud Light Legends for Bud Light. They've done campaigns for Coke, for Miller, Microsoft, ESPN, you name it. Coming off our conversation last week with Katie Welch about building a brand from the ground up using influencer marketing and potentially never hiring an ad agency, I wanted to get a view from the other side. How does a big ad agency work? Where does their money come from? So many of the big ad agencies are merging into what are called holding companies. Why is Widen still independent? I also wanted to know how Neil thinks about platforms. Right now, as the economy remains on shaky ground, the ad-based platform companies are posting pretty bad financial results. But ad agencies seem to be doing okay. Why is that? And does he worry about advertising in a world that's dominated by Google and Facebook? How much of his time does he spend thinking about TikTok? And with a recession coming, or here, or already over, or whatever it is, is he worried about the old cliche that ad budgets are the first to go? On top of all that, Neil's the new CEO, taking over for some pretty iconic founders, which, well, that's just pure decoder bait. This conversation was really fun. Neil was game to get deep into the weeds of all of it. I think you're really going to like it. Okay, Neil Arthur, CEO of Wyden Kennedy. Here we go. Neil Arthur, you are the global CEO of Wyden & Kennedy, which is a very famous, very big ad agency. People tell me it's the coolest ad agency. We're going to talk about that. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks, Neil. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. I want to start with some basics. I think a lot of people work with a picture of agencies in their head that like more or less comes from Mad Men, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not how it works anymore. Give people the short version of what a modern ad agency does. I mean, in some ways, and this is is
2: semi-controversial, in some ways it's not that dissimilar in the sense that Mad Men, you know, you have people who sit around in a room and and talk about ideas that can kind of capture the collective imagination of people. So it's similar in intent and design and idea, but the notion that there's like tons of time and people just kind of hanging around (laughs) and drinking martinis (laughs) In between is where it kind of goes awry, right? Like that's that's not really the business anymore and for lots of reasons, cultural change, you know, societal shifts, but also because there's just so much more to do. So if I'm in 1960s advertising, I might have three months to figure out a TV spot that goes on the air for brand X. But now you've got social posts, you've got down funnel, direct marketing and advertising. There's a million things that need to get made every single day. So the time for making and production and kind of out into the world is like compressed dramatically. So the impact of that on the agency is that there's less time just kind of sitting around doing Mad Men things, you know, (laughs) and and much more like, you know, working, figuring stuff out. I think there's a lot more time spent making and producing than you would have had at that time. It's similar in that the ideas and, and kind of coming up with ideas is kind of still the name of the game, but like the manifestation of how that works is very different.
1: So there's th- that part, right? You're, I'm going to come to you and say, hey, I need to advertise something to increase my sales. You're going to come up with a pitch and some smart, creative people are going to like make some advertising. That's going to turn into all kinds of assets that then you distribute onto various media platforms. Famously, in the sort of the Mad Men days, the buying the space is where the agencies made money. You would buy the time from the TV networks. You would take a cut of that cost, and that's your money. That's like not the case with the Instagrams of the world, I don't think. How do you make your money?
2: It's a service model. It's kind of, uh, I guess, similar in nature to like other service industries like law firms. You know, you're paid a retainer or a project fee by a client and you determine the scope of services, scope of work for that engagement. And then from there, you have people who are oftentimes dedicated to that business. right? So you're paying for time, for, for labor. And so we make money through that agreement. They pay us for labor and time. And then our output as a point of view on the brand and how that shows up in advertising and all sorts of different services that come with that two point. There's some of it's paid, some of it's earned, some platform, some of it's on others, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the money is it's retainer based and it works as much other service based companies.
1: So my background was as a lawyer. My wife's still a lawyer. Lawyers famously bill in six minute increments, which is very great for the business side of the law firm. Like totally nuts for the actual lawyers at the law firm. Yeah, is that how you think about it too? Like, okay, we're we're going to sign a big car company. We're going to put ten people on their account. We're going to bill out their time, and if they go over, we're going to bill them more. Or if some, you know, if you have like a central planning team or something gets involved, we'll bill for that time too. Or is it a little fuzzier?
2: Our agency doesn't function that way. We, we are a very much a creative, idea-driven agency. And a lot of what we do is a labor of love, right? So when we think we're close to making something or coming up with something really great, there's no way we'd go to a client and be like, oh, we're over on hours. Like, <laughs> you know, because that's actually prohibitive. That's not beneficial to them or to us. So we worry far less about hours. It's just not a game that we play. We're much more focused on an output. And so our thing, when we're talking to clients, we just want to make sure that we have the right people on their business. And then from there, it's kind of, you can unlock a lot of different things. And hopefully you'll get far more output than you ever anticipated because you got the right team on it. It's more about securing the right team. And then from there, not worrying about hours or nickel and diming or being too specific about deliverables because in today's world, you know, you never really know what you're going to make until you get started.
1: Yeah, that is very familiar to me. Welcome to this podcast. (laughs) We live it every week. Uh, So you're talking. You've got some people dedicated to some clients. You must have some central functions. How is Wieden and Kennedy structured?
2: In terms of structure, you've got a very traditional structure of how an agency works, where you have the top level of kind of executive management. You've got somebody who kind of oftentimes represents the business side, and then somebody who represents the creative side. That's pretty traditional. Now, Wyden Kennedy, it's a creatively-led agency, so that makes it very distinct. So even though I'm the CEO of the company and I represent kind of the business side, my partner, Carl Lieberman, he's the chief creative officer, you know, he has the greatest say. He has the, the definitive say on kind of what we do and don't do. Wyden's known for that, that's our kind of hallmark. So at that level, you're kind of trying to create a foundation and, a, and space for the culture of creativity to exist, but actual accounts You know, things like our clients, their teams built around those clients. And those teams have some basic functions. They have account management. They have creative leadership, CDS, creative directors and creatives. They have media oftentimes. Uh, They have strategy. And those four functions are always kind of client facing. And then there are a lot of other functions that kind of make everything work. You have production, you have uh, studio, you have design, you have project management. You have a lot of different departments that are kind of there to help support the creation and making of work. So at the top level, it's kind of business and creative. And then from there, you have teams that are
1: built around,
2: around certain clients.
1: So those teams are built around certain clients. I know that the answer is they're busy all the time. You already said they're busy all the time. But I always wonder, right, like a, a big company will come to you, a huge airline company will come to you and say, we need a new ad campaign. And then you, like, make it. You're not immediately on to the next ad campaign. What happens with that team after the Super Bowl ad ships and like the assets are out in the world.
2: Yeah, totally. So, so that might be the biggest shift that has happened in the industry. Like before it was all about big, you know, and you had big moments and big budgets and big everything. And it really picked your, like you had very confined deliverable. So like, let's make up a, again, brand X that has a back to school moment. That's important. Holiday, it's your goal. Let's say you would have developed campaigns, you know, with TV print out of home radio for those windows of time. But a modern brand doesn't function like that at all. It's a little bit like fashion where you used to have kind of fall and spring fashion shows and assume that people shop around those times. But like a modern brand kind of operates in real time. So when we're working on clients, yes, you will still have windows, but on top of that, there's day-to-day engagement that's happening all the time. So you're managing the social presence, you know, every single second of the day. There might be something that happens in the world that you're responding to. There might be something that took off, that you know, kind of caught on fire that you didn't expect. And so you're kind of feeding those flames. So so it's a much more dynamic process, you know what I mean? Where where it's less about kind of you launch a campaign and then maybe take a couple of weeks off and then start to figure out what the next campaign is. It's very much a, a, an always on. You're thinking about the brand and how to respond to what's happening in the real world all the time.
1: Well, let me ask you about that. Cause we, you know, we just had Katie Welsh on from Rare Beauty, that's Selena Gomez's beauty brand. It's a much smaller company than I think many companies you work with. But their whole thing is, look, we're direct to consumer. We're doing that ourselves. Like it's an 80 person company. 23 of them are like online all day. <laughs> That's what they're doing. They're marketing the brand direct to consumer yeah. on platforms. Other brands are doing that now, right? If you run any kind of company, bringing the, okay, we're going to talk to our customers on the internet function closer to the center of the company seems really important. But you're describing your agency as doing that for people. What's the split?
2: There are lots of different models. You know, some clients, they do that themselves. Sometimes the CMO or the the CEO does it themselves for clients. You know, oftentimes in founder-led companies, the, the voice of that brand comes from the founder themselves.
1: I would say uh, that cuts both ways for those brands.
2: Yeah, totally. And you can feel that sometimes, you know what, <laughs> what I mean? And, and, so that's one model, right? You have other models where, where, where clients have sort of in-house agencies or kind of in-house social capabilities where they'll manage that themselves. But we find that as an agency that's had some success in the past around creating a voice for a brand, owning that voice is actually, is pretty natural. And so we have lots of different dynamics where sometimes we own the entirety of, of a brand's social presence and others we own more of the voice and personality and then they might handle some of the consumer response to, you know, sort of like customer relationship type stuff. And so there's lots of different models, but I'd say it's still very valuable to have a partner who understands the voice of a brand really, really well and can talk about things that are happening in the, in the, in the world outside of your silo as a company grows, and I I wouldn't recommend that for companies at every different size, but once you reach a level of maturation and size, it's really helpful to have an agency that, you know, a partner that does that and can can understand what a voice should really sound and and operate like, you know.
1: Uh, How do you think about managing the size of Widen overall? Because you've got these like central production teams. I'm sure you have central business administrative functions, finance, HR, all that. Hmm. But as you get new clients, you've got to build new creative teams around those clients. Do you have like a ratio in your head of how big the sort of central team should be as you get more clients? Is that a cost that you manage?
2: I don't think I would say that we kind of think about that as like a goal of kind of managing it to a size or a ratio to or to a dollar. The challenge I think for any agency as it scales is Oftentimes, agencies are built around the creativity and the talent of its founders or, or leaders, right? And they oftentimes have a style that comes directly from that. One of the things that we've tried to do at Widen is to create more of a um, foundational approach that gives people the space and, and the environment to kind of like figure out what their version is of creativity looks like. So we don't say there's a fixed way of doing things. We have goals. We have intentions. We have, we have things that have worked for us in the past. Then you, you find really talented people, give them the space. And then that scales. So it scales through kind of creating the environment. And I think that's what we spend spent a lot of time talking about the environment of creativity and the culture of creativity. And that allows somebody who may have worked somewhere else to come in and go, Oh, I get it. I get the wide dynamics, now I'm going to apply that to this client. And you can scale that way. So if we create the sort of cultural foundation and get the right people, it kind of scales itself. I think if we were to try to, like, mandate a way of doing things, I think we'd be very limited in our in our upside.
1: How big is the company?
2: Uh, I think we are 1,600 globally. And we have offices all over the world. But uh, we started in Portland, Portland, Oregon. Uh, and we've been in New York where... and. We're in Amsterdam, we're in London, we're in Shanghai, we're in Mumbai, we're in Tokyo,
1: we're in Sao Paulo. You talk about the structure of the company a little bit. There's you, the CEO, you've got a chief creative officer. How much time do you get to spend on the creative? How much time do you spend reviewing campaigns and giving notes and all that sort of thing?
2: That's definitely the best part and a unique part of Widen Kennedy because it is, that is our whole thing. We get to spend a lot of time sitting and talking about about work we get to sit with teams and with clients and and talk about ideas a lot of the day it's the reason i love this place is the reason i love my job if i had to put in percentages i'd say i'd say that's 40 to 50 percent of the job which is cool just sitting and talking to people about ideas we say it's a culture of debate and we try to create as many forums as possible for groups of people right the team who's working on it like day to day like by the second the team who's leading and then and us at, a, at an office or agency level and be able to sit and have those debates about what's great about that idea and what can make it better. That's kind of the sauce. So a lot
1: of time. So this is like the set of Decoder questions. You have been at Widen for a long time. You know, I think you were in the planning department, then you were the managing director, then you ran the New York office. Now you are the global CEO. You also, right, you're the new CEO after the, the last founder left. So if there's a new team in charge, and the founders have exited. They were very famous. They set this culture. When I say it's the coolest ad agency, there's a lot of them in that mix. How do you make decisions? And how has it changed as you've gone up in the company and now you're in this new role?
2: I think one of the things that's really positive is both Carl and I, my partner, Carl and I have uh, grown up in close proximity. To the founders, right? So Dan and David, and we got to grow up around them and with them, and we were we were very close to everything and the way that they made decisions. So I think that's the most formative thing for us. It's not as if it's like we're coming in off the street and, tr- and trying to figure out the place. Like it's in our DNA. I've been here longer than anything else that I've done in my life. You know, it's but my like all my formative years have been at White and Kennedy. So I, I think at a certain point it becomes second nature to have a sense for at least what why didn't Kennedy's about, and what you're supposed to be upholding, you know? And, you know, listen, it's, it's, it's tricky. It, you know, we always, we talk about going from Buddha to Buddhism, you know? Um, <laughs> Is that a real phrase He use? Yeah, yeah, totally. We use it all the time. Because before, you'd, you'd go to Dan and be like, actually, what what should we do? And he'd tell you. And so that was the access to Buddha. And I'm, I'm obviously not trying to give an exalted sense of where we are in the, the totem pole. But it's difficult, I, I think, if you try to operate as if there are rules and if they're if, if you're trying to take the actual words of the founders and apply them that can be problematic but if you can apply them as philosophies then it, it kind of works so it's like we know that we're creatively led we know that we want to make work that people talk about in the world we you know it's like there's some very general principles that in today's context might mean something different but as long as you have those you hold true to those and it's okay so I, I feel like our job from a decision-making perspective is to tightly hold the philosophies and be light on the rules.
1: So let me put this into practice for you with kind of a big recent decision. Hmm. Uh, Wyden was famously Bud Light's agency for a long, long time. Hmm. Lots and lots of famous commercials. Uh, I saw reports in the trade. Bud Light said, hey, we're going to reopen this account. You can pitch us again if you want to. And you all declined. You said, we're not going to do that. We're walking away. That's a huge account. I'm assuming lots of money. How did you make that decision?
2: Yeah, those things aren't easy, but You know, but if you take the principle, like the philosophy is always you want to work on things where people want what you do. It's a little bit like dating where, (laughs) you you know what I mean? Like you can kind of try and show up to be the person you think somebody wants you to be or be who you are and see if that works. And we're always, I think we try to be very cool and accepting of the idea that like we may not be the thing that you want. And that's cool you know? And in that case, it was like they had a new team in place and they wanted to go a different direction. And it's like, oh, that's cool. And so we'd rather say, go forth and wish them the best of luck instead of try to to fight and pretend to do something that we we don't do, you know?
1: That's not the model for most like client service type companies, right? You're trying to attract business, retain Mm -hmm. business, slowly raise your fees over time. I'm not saying that I know anything about client service businesses, but, you know, there's like a game. That's very different for Wyden, right? And Wyden's known for, for moves like that, for acting against its revenue interest in terms of its cultural interest. How do you think about that? Not to bring it back to founders, but that's something founders are very able to do, right? They retain the capital inside the organization to make decisions like that. You're in a new spot. How do you think about those trade-offs and communicating them and making sure everyone buys into the trade-offs? So...
2: I have to acknowledge, like, one thing that's a differentiator for us that helps us make those decisions is that we're still independent, right? So we're not publicly held. We're not held by a holding company. That takes the quarterly pressure off of us and allows us to make decisions for the long term. And ultimately, our brand is defined by our creative integrity over the long term. And if we start to mess with that, that really erodes what we are and what our long-term success will be. So if we're gonna be in a position where that thing's in jeopardy and the opportunity to make something really great on behalf of the client with the client, then it's better for us, even though it might have short-term sort of downside, to go, well, you know, all good, Let, let's focus on the long term. So I think us not being part of a holding company, being independent, allows us to make those decisions. And then in terms of how do we make those decisions. You know, I think our first thing is actually to go, have we done everything that we can to demonstrate what we do and the value of what that would be, you know, and as long as that's understood and then there's like, a, you know, we're in an past, then it's like, okay, cool. We're all good. You know, it's, it's making sure that you've reached that point, that you've made what you do and what you're about super clear so that at least the decision is clear on both sides. If you've done that, then at that point, you just have to, you know, be confident and comfortable in that decision.
1: When you go to pitch clients, do you say, look, this is who we are? Like, if you want it, you got it. I mean, there's only so many clients with the budgets to afford you in the world. Are you just thinking, okay, they're all just going to rotate through us at some point? Or <laughs> are you thinking, man, we got to, I hope there's more competition in DTC because those companies are going to need to add agencies when the competition heats up. Like, how do you think about growing the business? Um, I think we
2: kind of think, and this is what might be, totally backwards and maybe bad, bad business. Um, but like, <laughs> the reality of it is we, we don't think about growing the business, we think about growing the opportunity. And like, there are times when that opportunity is abundant and you have you know, the types of clients and the types of people that are into the creative nature of what we do. And then sometimes it's a little harder, but like, we know over time that there's huge value in the thing that we do. And so we try not to get thirsty. So when we show up in new business, I feel like our goal in a new business environment is to, again, as clearly as possible, communicate who we are. That's the goal. It's not to try to convince you of something. I would never say, Eli, this is come over and like, and, I, and I'll show you all the things that maybe we could do and I'll do anything to, to, it's like, it's more just that if I can get you to understand what we're about, then we'll have the safe space for a, a good decision. So yeah, to, to your point is like, Is there a cap on growth because there aren't enough companies in the world that want to do interesting, creative stuff? I don't think so. I think, in fact, I think more and more companies are thinking about their brands and they're thinking about how their brands shows up in the world and they're having to fight for attention in a way that we've never seen before. And so there's actually more value to what we do. So yes, I I don't know, at least for the near term, I don't
1: lose sleep over, you know, sort of the upside potential of our business. You're talking about being publicly traded versus independent. A lot of your biggest competitors are gigantic public companies. WPP, Omnicom, Publicis, whatever. They're structured as holding companies. There's like boutique ad agencies and the Omnicom monster shows up to eat them. And the promise, at least so far as I've heard, is they say, look, we'll take all of the boring parts away. We'll run your finance and your HR and you guys can just be creatives. And we'll have a huge library of creative shops for people to come into. And like, if you don't like them, you can go to someone else and like, you'll stay inside the holding company, even out the revenue. And this is a promise. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. You still have to retain all of that administrative function, right? And, and it it seems like inside of your job as CEO, you've got the big creative partner and it's a creative company. So a lot of what you must be doing is like making sure the business is operating so the creative led culture can happen. Do you ever think, man, I should just flip this thing to one of these companies that will do all the business stuff so i can go back to being creative like that's the pitch that they have at least yeah i think that's
2: fairly accurate but like first of all i would say that the administrative work that we do is very little we try to stay lean and focused on the thing that we do really well and we partner with people and companies on the things that we don't do very well so interestingly enough we work with a lot of holding companies. So there are clients where we are the creative or strategic lead, and then we have tons of partners that exist as part of holding companies because there's a bunch of services, and a bunch of stuff that we don't do. And so we just try to be super honest about what we don't do and then cool about all the different partners that we're open to working with because our independence does allow us to say like, oh, you know, it's it's cool. Like in holding company X, if you've got a, a direct marketing arm that's really good, then great, let's work together. So I think the question would be, shouldn't why did Kennedy start to build out more of those services? Because there's revenue opportunities there and business growth opportunities there. The reality of it is we kind of only look at our growth should only come from creative opportunity. If there are more functional marketing services, we're just better off finding partners who do that. Um, So we try to stay focused on things
1: we do well and partner with people that can do others' things better. And you think the value is in staying independent, yes, for as long as you can. Yes, definitely. In fact, it's
2: built into our business. suite. this is a little known thing, but like we can't sell the company. It's like it's, it's impossible.
1: Why can't you sell the company?
2: Uh, it exists within the trust, and it's, uh, Dan has made it clear and then legally binding that that Wine and Kennedy and won't be
1: sold. So no, no gigantic, you know, private equity CEO play day for you. It's not No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> worth asking. Uh, I feel like I talked to a lot of CEOs on the show and like in the background lurks the gigantic PE payday. (laughs) We've like very literally (laughs) talked to a CEO where that was the reality for them. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the social platforms and how they distribute the ads that Wyden makes.
0: Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio? Designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no-code's your thing or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: We're back. So there's two sides of your business, the creative side and the distribution side. Let's talk about the distribution side. I am very curious how you think the platforms are doing and how the dynamics of advertising on the social platforms are affecting you. Uh, the big ones, Facebook, Snap, they're you know they're like having bad quarters. Their businesses are down. I can't see your financial results, but I look at the big agency financial results because they're public companies. They seem to be doing great, and they're very optimistic about next quarter. How are you guys doing?
2: we're doing well and we feel bullish on the, on the future, you know, and, and connecting it to where the social platforms are going. You know, I, I think, you know, obviously this, it's no secret that there's a lot of issues around trust, right? And and context, me, you know, media context, making sure that that what I pay for shows up in the right places. Control is part of this. It's a bit of a battleground. Everybody's trying to figure it out. I think if you're looking at it from our perspective, we think about it less as kind of like paying for all of the sort of digital and social inventory and more still using those platforms as sort of creative opportunities you know like there's just so much interesting stuff that you can do on the big platforms that are integral to gaining the collective conscious right to making a cultural splash so we think of them less as kind of like advertising revenue businesses and more about creative canvas you know and i think that's one of the things that's a bit of a misnomer is like for a long time, it was like, what's your st- social strategy? And it was just kind of like taking a TV commercial and putting yeah. it on the social platforms, right? But now each social platform is getting more distinctive for good and for bad. And I think there are opportunities for us when we look at creatively to really kind of, um, I don't want to say exploit that, but, but you know, take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, but let me focus on the dollars. For I want to ask a lot about the creative and the and differences in how you plan for the platforms. But economy is in a weird place. I don't know if it's a recession or not. Ad budgets are the first to go, usually when things go south. The platform companies that sell the inventory are having bad quarters. The publicly traded ad agencies that I can look at, they're having good quarters and they're optimistic about next quarter. There's a weird dynamic in there that I don't quite understand. Where do you sit now? Are you having a good quarter and you're optimistic? Or are you saying, whoa, things are getting weird? Good quarter and optimistic
2: and that's not grounded in anything i just to be you know like, to, to be super clear i'm not you know i don't want to, to give a sense that i'm an oracle of any kind but i think the models changed a bit because i think even the notion that the minute that you have a hint of a recession you cut ad spending that's a, it's a little different now because just the way that media works and the always on nature of brands i don't think you can look at it the same way you can't just be like oh never mind i'm just going to not show up in public anymore. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, it's like, yeah. So, yeah, you may not buy the Super Bowl this year, for example, you know, but like, maybe, but like, you still got to show up every day, you know, and you have to have something to say and you have to have content to be driving that conversation. So, like, it's just a very different thing. I think that the always on nature of brands, it kind of demands that we stay salient, that we stay sort of engaged in, in, in conversations even in a recessionary environment. So I think, I think the philosophy of how brands show up in, in difficult economic times, I think
1: might be changing. Do you think that's why the agencies are doing okay and are optimistic and the platforms are not doing okay? Because they still need you to stay in the conversation, but maybe you're spending less money with the platforms themselves.
2: Honestly, I need to think about that more, but I, I think that's certainly a, a worthwhile hypothesis for sure. The demand for content is as high as ever. But do you necessarily need to spend to see that ROI? Maybe not. And I think right now a lot of clients too are also kind of like really looking at their media mix and like placing bets. That's the thing I'm, I'm seeing a little bit more of. It's like, rather than just kind of blanket spend, it's kind of like, oh, maybe I'll put it on that number or on that number, you know, and, and, <laughs> and look at looking at the roulette table a little bit differently,
1: you know. What's the metric you measure? Obviously, Right, you go in and you pitch your values, and here's why, and we can do all these things for you. But at the end of the day, you're, you're saying we can increase your sales. Mm-hmm. Is that the key number at the end of the day, the bottom line, sales go up for clients?
2: Well, in our world, we deal it as much as anything in brand, right? So brand health, and I know that sounds like a soft measure, but it's an incredibly important one, right? So our thing is to first talk about what is your brand and how will that show up? And is your brand resonating with the audience that you choose, right? If you're like, I want my brand to be more relevant with young people, with Gen Z, then it's like, okay, that's the task. That comes before needing to you know, sell more widgets, right? Is you have to first go, okay, what's your brand about? Why will people talk about that brand? Why will they have an emotional relationship to that brand that will then make me more open to buying products? Because if you just skip the step to going straight to product, you're only as good as the time that you're spending. You know what I mean? So you'll benefit from that short term, but then once you kind of turn the faucet off a little bit more, then you're not going to see that same benefit. Whereas if you invest in brand, it has a long tail. So our metric is actually more brand related. We talk about brand health. We talk about brand engagement. We talk about brand relevance a lot. We want to see the clients that we work with. We want to see their brands show up in the most loved brands in the world, you know. And then it's almost always the case that uh, sales generally fall off.
1: One of my favorite style of tweets is when people are like, the brands are at it again. And it just means brands are wilding on Twitter, usually. A lot of what you're describing is brands are going to be more natural. They're going to be more authentic. But in fact, there's a gigantic global company like manufacturing that authenticity. Do you think that's a weird dynamic that brands are acting more like people?
2: There's so much nuance, in it, and I'll, I won't get too crazy with this, but, like, you're right. Brands are wild. And, like, it's, like, <laughs> the word authenticity is overused, and you and I both know that. But, like, authenticity is kind of everything. When I say brands should show up more like people, I do not love it when brands are mimicking behavior of others online. What I do love is when a brand has a clear sense for what it believes in and then knows how to show up accordingly. So, like, I don't mean, like, the, you know, sup, bro, tweets you know from clients that like that's cringe all over what i do mean is knowing that if climate change is a huge pillar of your company figuring out how to use social media to like actually advocate for that those positions and to to garner support and to create conversation so i think it's acting more like people in the sense of having passions and individual personalities that can come through not mimicking what what, what's going on and you know
1: whatever version of Twitter that you, that you want to be. So you mentioned Gen Z. This isn't on my sheet, but I feel like I just have to ask you this. Let's go. You ran the New York office during what I would call the millennial wars. <laughs> now you're the global CEO and everyone cares about Gen Z. Are you kind of like, yeah, we're just like doing this shit again. Like, <laughs> cause, it, cause we, li- we all lived through the millennial wars. Yeah.
2: Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like that. I I mean, it doesn't feel like that. I, I, you know, advertising. So because it's such a, an of the moment industry, like it feels feels like it's always that, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm always in some sort of like cultural storm, you know, but no
1: one did this on like Gen X. Like I didn't, I did not get the full weight of the media and advertising industries. They were like, you're a slacker. Like, please get a job. And then like the money, all showed up and I was like, we have to think about them. And now it's like, we have to think about Gen Z. Like that feels new to me in some way.
2: No, 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 no. I'm going to challenge that because right. I feel like as long as I've been in this business, like we're always getting a brief that's like, we got to win with, <laughs> Gen, you know, Gen X, <laughs> Gen Z, you know what I mean? Like it's, that's always the brief, you know, but yeah. I will say that it does feel like the collective conversation around Gen Z is bigger. It doesn't feel like it's just a brief anymore. It feels like it's a worldview, and there's huge. I don't need to say this to you. It's like there's huge cultural shifts and and sort of impact that are happening right now because of what's being led by the generation. And so it's weird to experience it in the workplace, with clients, in the work, in the media. You know what I mean? It's just like it's a it's a it has a much larger impact.
1: But are you just like okay? Well, the millennials are old now. Like screw them. Like right. That's like that's what seems nuts to me. Is like all right. Well, they they like they're spending their money. They got their brands. They're good. On to the next.
2: It's a great point. Now I, I would say that Gen Z gets outsized share of the conversation in our in our meetings et cetera. Dan used to say this, but it's like you're always trying to make work that you can kind of whisper to somebody, and they could be overheard by many others so I think the thing that we try to do is to while we're, we're whatever we're doing is supposed to resonate deeply and most clearly with the audience that you're talking to it should feel like it's got broad resonance so you try to tap into these larger larger cultural zeitgeist issues that like you know that everybody can have a perspective on we're, we're never trying to, to push you
1: away <laughs> you know I, I mean, again, I'm Gen X, like I've, I'm like instinctively <laughs> pushed away. I think famously, we're re- completely resistant to advertising, right? Isn't that the, the old cliche?
2: That is the cliche.
1: So we're talking about young people. We are talking about social platforms. We have to talk about TikTok. Sure. Every social platform, every company, every media company is like TikTok is the future. Instagram is blowing itself up to be more like TikTok. YouTube has shorts, which are TikToks on YouTube. How much of your time are you strategically spending on TikTok?
2: The rise of TikTok is wild, you know, and uh, it's been a short amount of time, but to have the cultural resonance that it does is really crazy. I think that the thing that's interesting about TikTok is that it's no longer just a platform, right? It, it, has, it has behaviors, really distinctive and ownable behaviors that are attached to it. And I think one of the things that's interesting about it right now is that, like, people are starting to use it for all sorts of different functionality, right? It's not just like, clearly not just dance videos. It's a a how-to for life in many ways. And it's a a really great platform for video, as we well know. In a a business that's kind of, that thrives in video and can communicate so much through video, it's a great platform. So TikTok, yes. Undoubtedly, a big part of our conversations, every client wants uh, a, a strategy, a social strategy for all platforms. But like, I think this is what's different is that now you'll go, what's my TikTok strategy? What's my Insta strategy? What's my, you know, et cetera. And instead of just like, what's the social strategy generally? So that that's, that's a big shift.
1: Are you just like in a lot of meetings where like Kendall from Succession is like, I need some banger TikToks. <laughs> like, cause <laughs> that's uh, like, I, not to be totally reductive, but like, <laughs> yeah. it sounds like that's occupying more of your time than you would think.
2: Yes. Yes. It comes up a lot. There's a little bit of the, uh, I want a viral video effect from 10 years ago. You know, there's, a little bit of that, you know, it's what's what are we doing in TikTok? Kindle may or may not be there.
1: <laughs> is that where brands want to spend? Right, so they come to you and they're like, "We need a TikTok strategy." You've got your playbook of moves, you've got your great creatives, who, like make this stuff, and then you go and you're running it on TikTok. You're paying TikTok for promotion. You might have like a paid TikTok strategy. Are you saying no? It all has to be organic, or is it more like we're going to make fun vertical videos and put them on all the platforms? Definitely not the latter.
2: That the fun vertical video strategy is just is, is deadly at this point. Like if it smells like, and I don't mean say it smells like an ad because you can actually can feel like an ad on platforms and get some some license, but like you have to kind of really be overt about that. But what you can't do is just be like it smells like the TV ad that you ran. <laughs> you know, yeah. it smells like or it smells like the Instagram post that you made that's now on TikTok. Like people are super sensitive. To understanding how platforms work. And if you can't demonstrate a basic understanding of the differences between the platforms and how they're con- how they're consumed, you're you're donezo. But I think, yes, our client spending starting to talk about and spend more on TikTok. Yeah, that's happening at the moment, you know, and and who knows what the future is, but that's that's happening at the moment. And from our perspective, we try to think about that much more from an organic perspective than from a paid because ultimately that's the content that gets passed around, right? Ads that are paid and for the sake of ads don't get passed around. We take huge pride in creating the content that people want to consume and actually seek out and then share. So we focus more on earned, uh, but yes, there's certainly a a paid investment that's happening right now.
1: You know, I take a step back and I think about who are the people in this world that can affect the platforms and how they behave? And it's very few people. It's like uh, Kim Kardashian, and then you, like you're the money. You're the one who spends the money for advertising on these platforms. That is the bulk of their revenue. We have seen it with a YouTube. Weird stuff happens on YouTube. There's an adpocalypse. All the advertisers leave. YouTube changes a policy. Six months later, everyone agrees that everything is fine. Maybe nothing has changed. But that there's a dynamic there where you control a bunch of money that can actually move the platforms in various directions. Do you feel that? that you have that influence over them? Do you feel that they're listening to your concerns or your client's concerns?
2: It's funny, even even as you were saying control, it's not a feeling I have. I mean, it's like, I don't, (laughs) even with, you know, sizable investments. And I think this is a good thing, by the way. It's like, we don't have a level of control where we get to dictate the, you know, changes in algorithms. And I, I think that's right.
1: You say you think that's right, but yeah, there's another model, much older, where you were buying inventory from magazines and TV and radio. And famously, advertisers did have a lot of control over what those media looked like, for better or worse. Like, the United States did not appear to be spiraling into democratic chaos in that media environment. And in this one, they do, because no one seems to have any control.
2: You're right. There was probably more control from a spend perspective, in terms of what you got from a spend perspective in traditional media. You're right. But I don't know that when we talk about control and governance and regulation and social media space, I don't know that it's because we want sort of corporations to be taking that control. You know what I mean? So I guess I don't think the answer should be that spend should equate to more control.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm asking this question against my own interests. I only have a career because there's no gatekeepers on the internet, but it strikes me that there are very few strong influences on platform behavior and the money, it tends to be the strongest influence of all. So I'm like, as you represent your clients, do you go and say YouTube recommendations are out of hand and like the money is not coming to you unless you get it under control?
2: Um, No. And again, this, this might be our unique thing because it's what we do, but it's like our conversations are more to do with instead of spending for influence, you have to earn it, you know, and you have to earn it by creating something that, people give a shit about. So I guess my thing would be, don't think you can spend your way into either to change or to control or an intended outcome,
1: you know? So the platform I have to ask about most distinctly with that is actually still TikTok, right? Mm -hmm. The other big platform companies headquartered in the United States, they have United States-based executives. We know who they are. Adam has been on the show I feel comfortable making fun of his video that where he apologized to everyone <laughs> about Instagram and then said, "Sorry, we're not changing it." Like he'll come back on the show. We'll talk about it. We can put our kind of media pressure on him. Kim Kardashian can put pressure on him. TikTok is a black box, right? There's but one executive anyone really knows, Vanessa Pappas, She reports to Byte Dance. Byte Dance is an even darker box of opacity, right? How do you think about that relationship? Do you think, okay, TikTok is growing, it's where the young people are, I'm spending money there, but there's actually like a geopolitical tension with allowing a very opaque Chinese company this much access to Americans' collective consciousness?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, l- l- listen, everything you're saying, I'm fully cognizant of. And, and it's it's just a difficult conversation because in the business that we're in, you're kind of really trying to follow where people are. So like. By that idea, TikTok is where a lot of people are, and you have to acknowledge that. Now, in terms of the future of where we go from a regulation perspective and kind of what it means for privacy and information, that's a space that we just continue to watch. And I guess the only thing I'd say, I think, from a if you're just asking me from a business perspective, it's a little harder right now to make a long-term bet when there are those questions that are still outstanding. so you just kind of take it a day by day. Now. We've gotten more comfortable with that. I mean, it's like if I would have said to you 30 years ago, let's plan our media spend, you would have probably been able to, to have a plan that worked for the next 10 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like kind of r- roughly. But now we're reevaluating where we spend media almost on a weekly basis. That's a huge shift too. And it's because of things like this, because you have the rise and fall and, of platforms and then geopolitical regulatory issues that are all kind of mixed into
1: that. Do your clients worry about the geopolitical issues of TikTok? Is that something you hear like, hey, we want to be on TikTok, but I don't know, we represent an iconic American brand and maybe we shouldn't associate ourselves with this controversy.
2: I'd be lying to you if I said, that's a conversation that happens. I think it's a conversation that's in the background maybe, but it's not something that we, we, we sit and talk to clients about a, a lot right now. Not because there's a like a laissez-faire nature to it, but I think there's a sense that those issues are being decided in other places in DC and other areas.
1: We need to take a break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Neil about something called the cookie apocalypse. It's a real word. Stick around. We're back. One of the things I think about a lot when it comes to platforms, access, organic reach is just democracy of access, right? You can start a new brand, you can make toothbrushes, you can make a banger TikTok Maybe you're going to get a bunch of toothbrush customers and you're going to, you're off to the races. Wyden and Kennedy just made like a amazing Ford Raptor spot where like a Raptor jumps over the desert. It's like great commercial. I love it. Those companies are not worried about, Hey, we got to find more customers and make them aware of us. Like Ford is Ford. The smaller companies, they have to just like start with some sales. Do you think there's a point at which those companies grow up and they say, actually, we never need an ad agency. We're just going to be good at TikTok.
2: Um, you can never say never, but like the short answer is probably not because oftentimes when a company starts, the primary battle is for awareness because you have such an ownable difference that if you can just let people know that you exist, you're good. You know what I mean? You you know what I mean? Like that's kind of the thing, right? So like if I, I don't know, I can't think of a good good example, but if I think of the three second apps, you know, it's like, I just got to tell people I got three second apps, you know? Um, but, but, but like, <laughs> but, like, as the product growth and the category start to mature, that inevitably means competitors. That means new entrants. At which point, not being dismissive for the sake of humor, but it's like the founder's tweets aren't going to get you very far. You know, it's like, it's like you're going to need more stuff and you're going to need to figure out how to have an ownable position for your brand and respect to the category. And you're gonna then need to be able to talk about why that brand's different and why that brand's relevant in a lot more spaces with a lot more nuance. It's a full-time job. It's not dissimilar to like, you know, when you're coming up, like monitoring your own finances, but like, as you become a big corporation, you need help, you know? Um, so it's, it's a service that becomes more applicable and useful as complexity grows and complexity comes with competition, complexity comes with maturity, complexity comes with scale. So, no, I don't don't see companies being like, oh, in in 10 years when I'm the size of huge company X, I'm still just sitting there
1: doing my TikToks, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's a lot of companies that are feeling that way right now and they might have to scale past it, but the thing that really strikes me in all of that is what really enables that is targeted ad spend. You're a small company, At least until recently, you could buy Facebook ads, target them with extraordinary precision. You could measure the conversion of sales with extraordinary precision because of all the tracking that's happening. Apple famously blocked that on iOS. Facebook says that cost them $10 billion, which is just an amazing result for one settings change on one platform. The argument is that really hurts small business owners, right? Their ad spend gets more opaque. It's harder to target. They get less sales, there's firing more money into things, those are lower value conversions. Do you feel that too at your level? Hey, we can't measure things as well as we were before. So our clients are a little more antsy.
2: I guess I would say, first of all, the marketing and acquisition at a small business level is very different than large corporations. I'm saying that, knowing you know that, right? So but like in a small business level, that targeted advertising is like, it's it's not just like an ad, it's like, it's a sales tool, right? It's like there's direct
1: conversion oftentimes. But I hear about cookie Apocalypse from like the biggest CMOs in the game.
2: So then we go to larger corporations. It's less about measurement in terms of like advertising effectiveness, but to be able to to track, that's gonna make things trickier, you know, Um, because your ability to follow people and and kind of uh, have an ongoing conversation will be harder. But again, for us, purely from a Widen Kennedy perspective, that's not really our game, right? Our game is kind of operating at a above the line level where you are having you have ideas that, that people are talking about and sharing themselves. That conversation does happen, but we still are kind of focusing on the larger idea that's going to drive the business in
1: all aspects of the kind of media sphere. But I'll just ask you very directly. I love asking about meetings. You're the CEO of Wyden Kennedy, biggest, coolest ad agencies in the game. Have you ever walked into a meeting and sat down and had someone give you a presentation about the word cookie-pocalypse? <laughs> uh, no, no. Okay. Was it a word other than cookie apocalypse?
2: <laughs> no, no. But cookie apocalypse comes up because it's a great
1: word. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great word. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm just imagining the meeting when it's like cookie-pocalypse strategy <laughs> no, no. session.
2: And a very serious meeting. You've got, you're, you've got the, the fate of the world, <laughs> and somebody <laughs> talks about cookie apocalypse. No, it doesn't come up as often as you may think.
1: So you, that whole turmoil that's happening between Apple and Google and Facebook and the ad tech world, it, it hasn't filtered up to you or it's resting somewhere else in the company?
2: I, just, I think it's at rest right now in the world of ad tech. Okay. And it's a huge conversation there. It's less in the world of brand and culture because it's more of a, a performance marketing sort of dynamic and immediate concern and issue. So it's just different sides of the building.
1: What kind of data do you look at in your role? Where you say these campaigns are effective, these creatives are effective. What are you looking at that helps you make those decisions?
2: You're always trying to cobble together the clearest indicators of genuine engagement. So you can't really look at any metric on its own. You can't just look at views, you can't just look at likes, you can't just like you have to look at all of it together because you want to see a proof that the world has seen and is responding to things that you've created on behalf of and with your clients. So you look at Twitter trending topics, you look at aggregate views, you do look at like, but you just look at it all together. And you're trying to get a sense for sort of, first of all, visibility, like how many people have seen exposure. Then you're trying to look at sentiment. Was it a positive sentiment or negative? By the way, there are instances where negative sentiment doesn't, it's not a bad thing. As long as you have positive sentiment with the right audience right and nike's an example of a client that does that really well it's like there's a distinction there but you're looking at kind of general sense of awareness general sense of engagement general sense of sentiment and then overall you're constantly tracking the impact the collective body of what you're doing has on the brand and like you used to kind of do that once a year where you look at brand health once a year but now you can look at brand health, thanks to social metrics and, and you know, and Google and links and all these things They can look at how people think about your brand and much more real estate. So actually the world of branding, it's become less amorphous, less soft because there are real-time metrics that you can kind of keep track of all the time.
1: Do you feel like your idea of what metrics are important are the same as your clients? Are you educating big clients on, hey, stop counting retweets, look at this more important metric instead?
2: The idea of measurement is one of the bigger conversations that we're having, right? And you, you can look at it because like before, whether you agreed with it or not, it was a really simple mechanic of like Nielsen, really, you know, TV and, and all your kind of big traditional media. Now, it's there's lots of data and lots more measurement. And the argument is what's useful, you know, what's actually indicative. And so we have a lot of conversation about what are the right metrics. And so when we start at any sort of new sort of brand platform or campaign, We'll sit with our clients and go, all right, so what's success going to look like? That's probably the question we ask most and we talk about most. What's success look like? Is it that my mom and my dad see this thing and talk about it? Is it that we move more product X? Is it that we see people talking about the brand more often? Like those are all things that are valid and you just have to get really kind of uh, clear and hopefully ideally agreement on what that looks like. and Therefore, you have a greater success of of reaching your goal.
1: All right. We're coming up on time. Usually I end all these interviews with like the ultimate softball question. What's next for why? I'm not doing that with you. Great. I know a lot of people in the ad world Our producer Creighton used to be an advertising producer and all of them tell me that everybody who's ever worked in advertising has one horror story of a shoot that just went completely sideways. And that's what you all talk about at the bar. You have a long career in advertising. I want to know your best shoot that went disaster story. Uh, that's not even fair because I'm not like really a,
2: um, <laughs> my background is in strategic planning. So I don't really go to shoot. Right, you
1: got to have one advertising disaster story. Everybody I know has one. I have one. I don't even work in advertising. Wait, what's yours? I got, you got to tell me yours really quickly. It's a long story. This is like two CMOs ago. I can't be blamed for this. Let's do this. Um, we had a series. It was sponsored by a company. I was at the, a John Mulaney show. In New York City. It was the Radio City shows that are the the special. And I got a call in the middle of the show from somebody freaking out that uh, the logo bug was white instead of red. And I was like, I truly, I don't care. And I hung up and went back to the John Milady show. And I found out later that everyone had worked like all night to figure out because the the video was not such that a red bug would have worked so it was white. And I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) But everyone had to scramble all night to fix it.
2: Okay, all right, listen, it's a great question because every shoot, if I'm being honest, in some way is a disaster. It's such a weird, <laughs> it's like, it's such a weird thing that we do. We we like talk about like with real seriousness about the metrics that we're in and we agree and it's like, it's all, it's very analytical. And then you find yourself on a set with like a grizzly bear. <laughs> you know? And it's like, wait, what? Like, it, you know, like it's it, it, it just not even set up to go smoothly. We had a shoot where, the grizzly bear thinks no joke. It was for a client where it was a live grizzly bear, and there's a very few of them who are kind of actors. And on this day, the grizzly bear was was kind of like lethargic, as one would be. I, you know, I don't blame him. <laughs> and one of the clients suggested that we we give it honey, um, and kind of like <laughs> tempt it out of out of his his trailer, you know, his star <laughs> trailer with honey. And we were like, ah, uh,
1: how do like I? he's Winnie the Pooh. <laughs>
2: totally. And, and, and it's like, wait, this is a, this
1: is a, a
2: monstrous grizzly bear. We're going to just get some honey? And, and, and so we had to have like this really delicate conversation that was like, how do I say that this is not, this may not be the thing? And, it, it, and he kind of refused to, to the, the idea that, that could be like, That's, like, are you kidding me? I've, you know, of course, you get, of course you get honey. To and, uh, so,
1: yeah, that, that wasn't great, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all but, right, fine. That's a great story. <laughs> you passed the test. What's next for Wyden and Kennedy?
2: For us, we just spend a, a ton of time thinking about what are all the different ways that creativity can manifest itself differently. And it's like, it, like I think the, the canvas has gotten broader. And so how do you do interesting stuff that feels like it's, I, I think, redefining the way that brands show up is, is what's interesting to us. People are dominating social media. Brands need to act and feel more like people. We need to be able to take more risk to be able to do things that feel more genuinely interesting and take more of the edges off of what it means to be a corporation. So like we spend a lot of time just talking about how do brands show up in an entirely different way, no matter how big or small the company is. And that's the stuff that we get. Excited about so it's just taking our thing, the thing of kind of taking big ideas and creativity and putting out in the world, and just using the canvases that we have to do that in more interesting ways.
1: That's great. Well, Neil, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Thank you so much for telling me the story with the client try to feed the bear honey. This is great.
2: Oh, this is really, really great. Thank you for the time
1: thanks again to Neil Arthur for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at at verge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. And as many, many of you have figured out, if you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. Researched by Liz Leon. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.